0: Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast about that time of life that tends to take us all by surprise. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Let's get right into it. Today, today, it's just like some days the menopause brain is not good. Today's one of the days. I've had a few nights of about six hours sleep and I'm just like at the end of the
1: rational capacity right now (laughs) that is a good phrase for it most people I know seem to think that if they've had six hours or sleep less sleep a night for a week or a year but I should still be able to operate at this level no your brain literally shuts down after a while that's why you start pausing that's why you start going the word is um 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 and this is something I did when I was a mental capacity and contentious probate lawyer I was sitting at my desk reviewing the medical records of somebody who had left, they'd written their will and there was a dispute over whether they had capacity to write that will. And I'm reading their medical records and it's talking about how they have aphasia. And aphasia is where you don't get the right word. So either you pick an alternative word or you pick something that's next to it, or when most people have social cover and they switch the context of the conversation, so you don't know what they're doing. And I sat there and somebody said, do you want a coffee? And I went to say, I want a tea. And I couldn't get the word out. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God. Oh my God, I'm reading about aphasia and I'm experiencing aphasia and I'm 30? What the hell? And it was because I'd been working 60 to 90 hour weeks for 10 years at that point and usually getting between five and six hours sleep a night every night. It was literally a torture.
0: (laughs) So... I'll start. I'll just introduce you. I'll do a little introduction and I'm going to do the, I generally don't do this, but I actually think this is important in this case. So you're a burnout mentor and trainer based in Bristol and you're the founder of Searching for Serenity. You worked as a lawyer for more than a decade. And you're now a non practicing solicitor who works with professionals and companies to help them identify, manage, and reverse issues of burnout, as well as understand related topics such as imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and people pleasing, overwork, and overwhelm. So, this is exactly what we're talking about, and this is how you got into it, isn't it? Because you did your, as you were saying earlier, when I wasn't recording. <laughs> you did, you, you got to the bar, you actually did your degree, did your postgrad and did all your qualifications and you were yeah. called to the bar at 22? Yeah, 22 years old. Which just, well, I've got goosebumps even thinking about that because when you think of a barrister, you don't think of a 22 year old for a start.
1: You don't, I think that's why they put grey wicks on top of us, so <laughs> they look older.
0: Just to make <laughs> you look a bit more wisdom, a bit more wise.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, wizened. And,
0: this is my aphasia coming in now. Um, <laughs> but what, what made me ask you on the podcast was that news article that I sent you last week, which we've yeah. known each other for about four years now and we've spoken about yeah. all of this kind of stuff. We've had a lot of conversations. But then I saw in the newspaper in Australia that there's just an inquest. Is that the right word? Inquest had just been finished.
1: I, yeah, it was a first
0: The coroner's court in Victoria into a woman who she was appointed chief of the department in the legal services and she committed suicide at 45 and it the coroner has found that it was because of the toxic workplace and environment that she was in and that just brought to light for me, everything that you've been talking about over the years, because we all look at solicitors and barristers and we think, oh, they're really powerful, they've got really great jobs and blah, blah, blah. That's not the experience, is it?
1: It's really not. I'm actually scrolling back through the, the inquest report as we're talking because I, was, I remember I was reading through after you sent this to me and one of the things that really got to me was everything that she was doing was just so similar so so similar to so many of my clients to so many of the things that I've done and then I saw that she was 45 and I was very genuinely taken aback because I'm 36 now I spent 12 years or so in law um, between early jobs working as an unqualified lawyer then qualifying I had a weird and wonderful route around law I kind of took the the scenic route (laughs) when it comes to law uh when I was working around but everything that she was doing and then she was only 45 and that horrifies and terrifies me because one of the things that I will say to people is they're talking about everything they need to do, the number of hours they're working, the stress that they're feeling, the responsibility. And then I point out that they've probably got another 30 or 40 years until they actually retire. And the look of horror on their faces every time, because the unsaid question then is, can you keep this going for another 30 years? And the really obvious answer is no. It's, yeah, it really hit close to home, but it's not, it's far from, the most recent uh, it's far from the only case of this that I've seen, and there's a lot of coroners inquests around suicide of lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers over here, at least, being struck off under stress. It's I could rant all day about this, but yes, there's a lot of junior lawyers in particular at the moment who, when I say junior lawyers, it's usually up to about five ten years qualified. So when you're not a partner. And it's a recurring theme here that junior lawyers who are under pressure, under stress, typical stressors, high volume, low control, toxic work environment, bill, 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 get the money through. And they are under so much pressure that they drop the ball on something. And rather than being able to speak to their managers or their compliance department and say, guys, I messed up, they will do something to cover it up. They will tell a small fib. They will backdate a letter tiny action and it will result in them being struck off for dishonesty that's horrifying that's the kind of huge cliff edge that most people are on at the moment and it's it's got to change because i, I was quite
0: surprised when i was reading it like she went to the let me have a look oh they go she was so it, th- this is a quote from the article she was so worried about the effects her mental illness might have on her reputation and career prospects that she did not disclose a suicide attempt to any of the seven gps three ps- mm. psychiatrists and four psychologists she saw over 39 appointments over about six months that's like more than one appointment a week and she oh, never yes. said anything like no. that because she didn't want, she said to her sister, but I think if I if I get admitted to hospital, I can kiss the judicial appointment I was aiming for goodbye. And that's basically yeah. what you're saying, isn't it? If you admit to any kind of weakness, I can't cope with this, or you ask mm. for help or you make a mistake, your
1: career suddenly stymied. This actually happened to me. So I experienced my own issues of burnout around eight years into my career. And at that point, I had consistently worked 60 to 90 hour weeks, almost across the whole of the eight years. I had taken on second and even third jobs whilst I was working to boost my salary, to raise my profile. I was doing extra roles within the firms I was working in. And when I experienced my own issues with burnout, it was because I was very suddenly bereaved. My mum died. And you work at capacity and you can stretch beyond capacity to a certain extent for a certain period of time, but it's like a rubber band. If you've got that rubber band that's wrapped around a big hefty file, the moment you take it off and it's been there for too long, it just cracks into pieces, right? And I had that moment. I I couldn't come back to centre. I couldn't come back to resilience. And I, after about six months after my mum died, I was signed off sick because I had been, I dealt with the coroner's inquest by myself. I dealt with a funeral pretty much by myself. I cleared my childhood home. I was taking one day a week off work and driving two and a half hours, which in the UK is quite a lot at least, um, to my childhood home. (laughs) Distance is different between you and I these days. Um, Traveling two and a half hours to my childhood home to clear my childhood home. So I was working four days a week with the recently bereaved and then one day a week I was clearing my childhood home and it just all got on top of me. And I had a virus, I had sinusitis, I wasn't sleeping. I was having IBS flare ups to the point that clients were asking me when I was due and had I had my 20 week scan. And I was like, no, I'm just stressed dealing with you, basically. Um, and this actually happened the week before I went off sick. I was like, I've just had enough now. This woman wanted to know when my scan was. And I kept saying to her, I wasn't pregnant. And it ended up somebody shouted in her face. and was like, she's not pregnant. You need to listen. I was like, oh God, okay. I've signed off sick. And I had that, I can't do this anymore moment. I was looking for a new job. And when I spoke to a recruiter, it was two days after I'd been signed off sick. And she phoned me, she checked through my CV, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. And she went, OK, so what's your position right now? Because obviously we're talking in the middle of the afternoon. And I said, well, I've been signed off sick for two weeks. And she immediately crossed over me and said, you haven't been signed off with a depression or anxiety, have you? Because you know you won't work in law again. I'm not saying it's right, but if that's on your medical records, you won't work in law again. Um, and we know we. I need to know now. And luckily, because my job had involved reading other people's medical records for the last 10 years, I had the wherewithal to say that's bullshit. That's not the case. And even if it was, my medical records are private. So nobody's going to see them. Nobody's going to be asking for them in order for me to get a job. Why would you say this to somebody? Particularly somebody who's in a vulnerable position. But that is still the attitude. And it's obviously very interesting for me as somebody who goes into law firms and talks about burnout, I'm the acceptable face of this because it's burnout is not a mental health condition. It's a little bit to the side of it. It's an occupational phenomenon. It's the reason why doctors might come into contact with stressed out people, not anxiety and depression. So people are more happy to talk about burnout than they are mental health in a public environment. So it's it's terrifying.
0: And just let me ask you this, is it, and I don't know how to say this without sounding sexist, but is it more a a woman's thing than a bloke's? Because women tend, and I'm asking this not because we're the weaker sex, for God's sake, you know, (laughs) but because we do tend to take on more and we tend to take on the emotion of things. When we're talking to clients, we will take on what's going on for them more easily than this generalisation, a lot of men, that's our nature. Is it more a female thing? And is it used to discourage and um, stop women from advancing as much? Is it part of that whole glass ceiling thing? I suppose this, is, really a this is a
1: loaded question. Well, it is a loaded question, but it's a really interesting one. I'm going to flip the question around for a second because... Sorry, I've still got the um, report in my hand. That's why I've got my phone. (laughs) Um, So I, when I first started searching for serenity, I worked exclusively with women because I hadn't yet seen a man who I thought had experienced burnout. Four years on um, and a lot of decontamination of the online business culture from what I was doing. I've thrown out the kind of ideal client avatar and all that crap that we are taught. And, I would say it's around a third of my client base is now men. What is different is men present differently. There are definitely, there's more stigma. Um, It's usually more internal than external, honestly, because there is that inherent belief around what it means to be a man, what it means to be a provider. Often the men that I speak to are married with children, and it's only when it starts to affect their home life that they go, oh, shit, I can't do this there is more, I think, willingness to bear consequences for themselves than for others with men. So whilst I do work more with women, I think that's more because we are more encouraged to have emotional literacy, certainly within law, there are women lawyers division groups. Now, there aren't men's lawyers division groups, probably because the entire industry was set up for men and we just burst into it a few years ago. Um, Women now make up about 52% of qualified lawyers each year. In the UK, we've just in the last two years tipped the balance that there are more qualifying women than men. However, there's a lot less women equity partners. There's a lot less women on the board. And I pointed, for example, at one firm I worked at, the entire board was male apart from one woman who was actually scaling down stuff to take a step back. So she worked part-time because she had kids. And she was the only woman in that meeting. And I would say, for example, well, how do you expect to consistently retain talent if that is what the boardroom looks like? And the response I got was, yeah, it's because women don't want to do it. No, No, it's not. But we'll have another conversation about that another time, guys. It is. I don't think it's necessarily leveraged to dissuade women. I think it is a natural consequence sometimes. So, for example, we are now in a second lockdown here in England. And in the first lockdown, there was plenty of evidence to show that women were picking up the second and the third shift. So I was speaking to clients who were getting up at 5 a.m. to do two or three hours of client billing work and then homeschooling their children from 8.30 till 4, feeding everybody. Everybody else was in front of the TV or going to bed and then they'd start work and work through till midnight or 1 a.m. Because there was no way of them doing their work and homeschooling their kids and keeping them from knocking each other out, throwing each other down the stairs. And I would say, but isn't your partner working at home as well? Yeah, but he can't multitask the way I do. Well, you're not multitasking, are you? You're actually single-tasking and just extending your working day to become 20 hours instead of eight. But I think it has an impact, particularly, and this is one of the reasons why I came to it, I was just seeing this constant stream of women walking out of the building and never coming back after having kids when I quit one of my jobs they found a replacement for me who then said oh I've just gotten married and I want to work four days a week instead of five my husband works four days a week it's our opportunity to actually spend some time together and they immediately withdrew the offer to her because they didn't think the job could be done in four days a week but then again this was five years ago when I was also told you know or probably more than that now that you couldn't work from home, full stop. Well, that changed this year. Um, You couldn't work flexibly, full stop. That changed this year. So there's a lot of conversations I think that are going to be adapted moving forward. I think burnout doesn't necessarily disproportionately affect women, but women are more likely to talk about it. We are more encouraged to talk. We are more encouraged to share and to support each other. And so if we see someone else struggling, our first thought is to say, hey, I've been there rather than they need help it's the sympathy versus empathy change right but men definitely struggle with burnout and in some ways it goes deeper because they haven't sought help and support a lot of the time for other things they don't necessarily go to counseling go to cbt they don't have a group of friends that they will share these things with So it's more tricky sometimes to develop the language. And when I do do this work with men, it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic because you can't stop them from implementing what you ask them to do. But it's trickier to get them through the door. I'm having a lot of conversations with men at the moment with these short um, one-off calls that I have, but they then won't necessarily take the next step because that's a bit different.
0: I wonder if it's like ADHD in reverse. ADHD is easily identifiable in boys, but not so much in girls. And it seems Mm. to be like it's the opposite of that. We can spot a woman maybe more easily, but it's more hidden
1: in the guys. Or we haven't figured out what the warning signs are. I don't know. I think... I think it's more, I, I get your point, and I think it's correct to a certain extent. I think it's also more about internal self-awareness. Right. Um, we, <laughs> I think, it sounds awful, but as women, we kind of know and expect to be exhausted all the time, whereas it's sometimes a bit different for the guys. They suddenly go, nothing is working the way it used to, and I don't feel like I'm having an impact. It's the same stuff. It's just women tend to tolerate a certain greater level of it i think um and we're more used to speaking to other people about our struggles with parenting our struggles with work our struggles with getting promoted our struggles with not feeling good enough um we also
0: expect to feel that way there is an expectation i'm gonna feel tired i'm gonna feel overwhelmed i've got the kids and i've got this and i've got to do the job and i've got to beat the men and or at least keep up with them we
1: expect mm-hmm. to feel exhausted almost. Yes. And so it's only when it then tips. There is always this tipping point with burnout. Exhaustion is not the thing. Um, exhaustion is just we're all exhausted. <laughs> and that's, that's a whole other discussion and a whole other thing to change. It's when it suddenly tips into I don't enjoy anything anymore. I, I don't do anything for myself, but I wouldn't even know where to start. And everything just feels a bit grey and monotone. And that's when it tips for women. For men, it tends to be, I'm not seeing the outcomes I was seeing before. Whereas women tend to accept a kind of decline in some of the outcomes and not know what to do about it until they suddenly hit a point. But what's really interesting is every time I produce any kind of blogs, any kind of posts where I'm like, here's six symptoms of burnout or here's five things you didn't expect, you know, very magazine style, like here's five things you didn't expect about burnout. And uh, at the beginning of the year, I wrote a blog like this, that was basically signs that your staff are burning out, and somebody sent it to their manager, and they were kind of live tweeting me as their manager read it, it was like, yep, heads and hands, yep, head is banging on desk, yep, looks stressed out, should I give them your number? Because This was across women and men. Those symptoms are consistent. It's our internal self-awareness and our ability to pick up on it. It's our emotional literacy and ability to discuss it. And often having a supportive friendship group that you discuss these things with is enough to ameliorate it. So it doesn't fix it, but it gives some resilience and it gives some reserve to it. And then you've just got this point where you have managers in particular looking across these rooms and going, oh no, oh no, we've, we we can see it. We can see the person slamming down the phone. We can see the person who used to come out with us every Friday night for a drink and now barely makes eye contact with anybody. We can see the people who are piles of cups around them because they need the coffee and tea to keep them going. We can see the people who used to be at the top of the billing and they're just slowly sliding down the list. And that's when managers then come to me and go, what can I do? Because I've experienced this myself and I recognise it. Ah, but have you talked about it? No? Let me do that then. It's the emotional literacy point.
0: So those those symptoms that you just mentioned, just go through
1: them again. So the World Health Organisation came, def- well, came up with this definition, published this definition of... Uh, as a result of other people's work in May 2019. And the media kind of went mad for it. There was a lot of talk about burnout, and now it's kind of receded. So the first thing is that they say that burnout is um, an occupational phenomenon. So it's not a medical definition. It is something that will cause you to come into contact with medical professionals. So I think that's the first thing. It's slightly less weighty. It doesn't quite have the emotional weight that a diagnosis of depression might do. And they say that it is as a result of chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. So, of course, chronic means over a period of time. Now, that could be weeks, but it's more often months, years or even decades. And workplace stress, I mean, what what, what workplace isn't stressful, Um, but in particular, that has not been successfully managed. Now, I take that to mean that you haven't come back to zero, Um, that there is some level of residual stress all of the time. And when I think of the work that I do, that my legal clients do, we're often up at 10 o'clock at night, two in the morning, thinking about cases. Particularly in the legal industry, everything is stacked high. There is never a time that you'll clear your desk and all your work will be done just never happens didn't in my entire career and so that is a level of unsuccessfully managed stress but of course it's cultural rather than individual so there's a difference there is it something that I have control of is it something that is just the place that I work is it just the industry is it our culture remember a few years ago when everybody had to keep calm and carry on on their freaking kitchen towels and t-shirts and everything keep calm and carry on does not work with burnout So then there's three core symptoms that they refer to. The first is exhaustion or chronic exhaustion or depletion. So that is beyond simple tiredness. If you can have a day off or a week off and you feel good for longer than the time that you had off, that's my litmus test to say you're exhausted, but you're not necessarily burned out. Burned out means I can have a week off work. I can lie on a, as I did six years ago, I can lie on the sun lounger and read a book a day and drink beer and fall asleep three times a day and have 12 hours sleep a night and within a week of being back at work, it's like I never left. The final one on the list is reduced professional efficacy, which means you're not achieving what you did before. It feels like you're pushing a boulder up a muddy hill. Most of us have felt like that a lot of the time, but it's where those two start to circle around each other and you have chronic exhaustion and depletion and reduced professional efficacy. So I'm not getting as much done as I was before, so I'll overwork, but that leaves me exhausted. So then I'm exhausted, so I'm not getting as much done. So And the two spiral. But what I find really interesting is the middle part of the definition where they talk about increased negativity or cynicism, or increased mental distance towards your work. That one's really interesting for me. It took me a while to get my head around what mental distance from your work is. But for me it's the classic. I speak to a new client, they say I became a lawyer or I became a medical professional because I wanted to help people I wanted to make a difference. and I don't feel like I'm doing that. I don't really know what I'm doing. I feel like nothing I do is good enough, but I don't know what I'm trying to achieve. That's the mental distance. It's where the values drop off completely. It's where you even become so negative and cynical that you feel like your job is actually to create harm rather than do good. Um, From my example, at the time of my burnout, I was a contentious probate lawyer. So whether it's a family disputing a will or an estate or a large sum of money, even if someone's still alive, I was helping them to deal with it. There's a lot of good that happens there because often people come to you when they have been experiencing family trauma for decades. It's very few functional, happy families that end up in the high court over an estate. Happy families just sort it out. So there was a lot that was going on with it, and I attended a training, and the, me, the it was about mediation and how to use mediation to resolve litigation, and. The mediation trainer was talking about this case he'd had and how he'd found the golden thread, the thread that held it all together, that when pulled, helped them to resolve it, to bring people back together. And it resolved around, revolved around the two brothers and sweets. And I was looking around the room and everybody's got that shiny face. You know, when you see people have just got it there's a light bulb above their head, they're like, oh, I love this. And I was like, i thinking, are you kidding me? I have just I've I've been up since 6 a.m. I travelled to work, which is a 90 minute journey from where I live. I then travelled from where I worked 90 minutes further away from the destination of this training, all the way from Cardiff to London, which is like a three four hour journey to attend this training that's happening in central London in the evening. Because of course, no lawyers live outside the city. Um, I'm not going to get home until 11 o'clock at night. I'll have been up for 18 hours, and you're talking about freaking Haribo. What the hell? And I was angry the whole way back to the train station. And now when I look back at that definition, I'm like, oh, there we go. There was the negativity and cynicism and increased mental distance because it wasn't a brilliant moment where I could see it playing out in my own career. I was like an outside observer thinking, this is ridiculous. So these three elements combine chronic exhaustion and depletion, reduced professional efficacy, negativity and cynicism and increase mental distance from your job, those three things are all in place when you're experiencing burnout. But what then happens is they show up in different ways. So one of the things I talk about in corporate trainings is maladaptive coping mechanisms, where it's treating the surface level issue, but not the deeper issue. So for example, you're tired, you drink a coffee. You don't ask why you're tired and go and get more sleep and maybe go to the doctor for some sleeping tablets because you've got chronic insomnia. You drink a coffee or 12. You get home from work and you're stressed out and the whole weight of the day is on your shoulders. And the first thing you do is open the fridge and pick up that open bottle of wine and have a glass because that allows you to numb out and avoid what's going on. So often what we then have is this in habitualized burnouts, so or where it's been happening for a long period of time, we have all these coping mechanisms that allow us to stay in this position of but being burned out, working ineffectively, but being good enough to keep going. And they keep us stuck in this burnout for longer. So I will use coffee to bring me up, wine or gin to bring me down at the end of the day. I will withdraw from social events and not feel as connected to my colleagues when I've already got increased mental distance and cynicism but I can't handle going to the company Christmas party because I might actually say what I mean I will avoid people I will put up a barrier and this is the really awful one for a lot of professionals I will put up a barrier between me and the people that I'm here to help because I can't feel their emotions anymore. It's too much. It's like I've been rubbed down with sandpaper and rolled in lemon juice and salt and served up as a human margarita. It just hurts. And I'm too tired and I can't deal with it anymore. And that's where we disengage. Again, increase mental distance. But we disengage our empathy. We become negative and cynical. We say, of course it's about the principle of the thing and not the money. That's why you're engaged in litigation, obviously. And you know clients just never get it do they but those behaviors keep us stuck in this for longer and they actually normalize burnout as part of culture and here endeth my complete soliloquy
0: <laughs> that was actually great because there's, there's a lot of questions then come out because yeah. You're talking specifically to the legal industry, and because I can see that that would be a, a really toxic culture because of the expectations. Mm. And because I used to think, oh, yeah, maybe I should do law when I was at school and when I was younger, and then I thought it's adversarial. I couldn't, I was a quantity surveyor, I only did it for five years because it was all about fighting your place and beating the other person and getting one over somebody and screwing down the subcontractors I was really bad and I also didn't want to do what was necessary to climb the corporate ladder yeah because that's the other thing there's an expectation you can't even go well I like doing this job because you're judged for it why aren't you going for that advancement you should be going for a promotion don't you want to be better
1: so it's a very strange thing, particularly in law, but also in a lot of other industries. I'm really good at my job. My clients love me. I get great outcomes. I build a lot of money. Great. Be promoted to a job where you get to do a third of that and do a job you never actually trained for and probably don't have the set for. Well done, you're a manager. It's, it's a recurring joke. And when you talk about the, the great lawyers who become managers, every HR professional I know, even most of the managers are like, I know it's awful, isn't it? But the interesting, I talk to the legal and I talk about context of the legal industry because it's where I was. It's the best way for me to connect because I can explain this. But my client base, I mean, outside of corporate, it's probably about 40% lawyers. I have clients who are medical professionals, consultants, surveyors, (laughs) um, vets, veterinary, um, you know, the whole veterinary field, Um, because again, You know, you've got this personal responsibility. There's a couple of key personality traits that will play into burnout and they are perfectionism, imposter syndrome. You take a lot of responsibility that you want to achieve a high level of results that you externalize your self-worth. So your self-worth is derived from what you do rather than who you are. Um, And all of these things play into these industries. If you're a vet, you're taking responsibility for everyone's pets or farm animals or livelihood. So there's a huge burden to get it done. Perfectionism means keeping them alive and keeping them happy. So you want to achieve that. Almost every white collar industry has an element of burnout. And I even work with a lot of people who are in blue collar industries. My background, I grew up. On building sites my father was an electrician my grandfather was a plumber and a plasterer i i often use the joke that my grandfather didn't need boundaries around work he after they shut the family business he went and worked for one of the big construction suppliers that everybody here knows travis perkins and he worked he did his nine to five he went home he didn't have emails he didn't have people contact him all day nobody was going to phone him at home because the business was closed no one was there to pick up the, the questions um, he didn't need boundaries they were already there and even in the time that I was working in the legal industry I started at a firm where you know the post went out at four o'clock so you had to have it ready by 2 p.m the post arrived at 9 a.m and would land on your desk already opened and date stamped for you so you could sit with a coffee and filter through it very rarely particularly in lockdown while do lawyers receive physical paper post we just receive emails or day long consultants that I know who are on call and can get a phone call at 4am get out of bed and come in because you need to operate on somebody all of these people whose working hours have extended availability contactability responsibility all of these things have been extended so whilst my grandfather didn't need boundaries around his work 25 years ago we never learned them we never, never learned to stop, to say no, to switch off. And then what we did was just turn the tap full on and leave it on 24-7 and then wonder why we're drowning in it.
0: Yeah, and I think looking at COVID as a context, it's maybe an opportunity for us all to actually be responsible and go, well, hang on, this is my life. I do have availability on the phone all day if I choose it emails all day social media all day the internet all day so how am I going to manage this and take responsibility for my own life as well as my own health and well-being because we don't first thing we do in the morning is pick up the phone and go all right who's messaged me I have to switch off all notifications on my phone because otherwise I get up in the morning and I see the WhatsApp because everybody, most of my family's in the UK, a lot of friends in the States. So of course they're messaging me overnight my time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a double-edged sword having been in lockdown twice now. Um, (laughs) Please don't let it happen the third time. Um, It's definitely been a double-edged sword because, for example, I have left jobs where I was told it is impossible for you to work from home because everyone will want it and we can't possibly let that happen. Well, most firms overnight in March had to distribute hundreds or thousands of laptops and get everybody on the system working from home or shut down. And they all managed it to some extent or another. So it was possible. We just didn't want to do it. And I was told you can't work flexibly because you need to be available these core hours. Well, we've now seen people are doing work at two in the morning, people are doing work at six in the morning, three in the afternoon, and it doesn't matter as long as the work is getting done. So these things have shifted. It is going to be almost impossible for most law firms, for most white collar, you sit at your desk industries to say, Next year, no, sorry, we can't do flexible working, work from home. You can't work remotely. You can't do these things because it just won't work. Be like, well, if it worked in the pandemic, I'm going to go work for the places that do. And there's some big name law firms over here actually that have shut all of their offices. And just said, we are not going to have offices. We will have hubs where clients can come for physical meetings if they need it. But we are not going to run offices as standard because it's really expensive and it's a lot of personnel. For no real benefit we found. we don't need them. so we can slimline that and we can spend the money better, maybe even give people a pay rise I don't know. So that's good. What's bad is the few boundaries we had just got swept away. And then we also had new stressors like the pandemic, like nightly news conferences with our prime minister like, do we wear masks? Don't we wear masks? Where are we allowed to wear masks? When are people not allowed to wear masks? Hand washing, alcohol, hand gel. I mean, can you see the X on my hands right now? It's ridiculous. Um, All of these things are new stressors. And then our previous stressors got amplified, worrying about money, worrying about being furloughed, worrying about safety, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all got slammed to the bottom of it overnight. And then we wondered why we weren't self-actualizing immediately and beating ourselves up for it and then all the coping mechanisms went away right now over here in england at least gyms are closed you can't go to the theater or the cinema you can't go recreational shopping you can't get your hair done you can't get your nails done all of these things that we used if not to make it better then at least not to make it as bad and then people wonder why they're more stressed more stressors amplified the previous stressors remove the coping mechanisms Oh, and then it's exhausting, this noise and this friction of constantly having to adapt, constantly having to change, all the, the literal noise. You know, BBC news alerts are the, pretty much the only notification I have on my phone, and I'm now at the point where my stomach drops every time I see one. Oh, God, what now? Oh, God, are we going into lockdown again? Oh, God, you know what's what's the newest death toll? We hit 50,000 this week. Mm. All of these things have an impact on your energy your ability to focus your ability to adapt to be resilient and then we wonder why we're cracking like the rubber band that's been wrapped around a file for three years so there's a lot to it definitely and i think covid has had more of an impact than most people would like to admit studies in china during their february lockdown showed Um, a 20% increase in, 18% increase in depression symptoms, I think it was, 20% increase in insomnia symptoms. And it was around a third of people were experiencing symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder where they had not previously. If we extrapolate that out across the whole world, we've just increased mental health issues by 20 to 30%, if not more. Women in particular are to work a longer second shift. We're not getting the support we were previously. We've got remote working, creating communication difficulties with employers and employees. We're currently in one of the biggest recessions we've had ever on record. And yeah, and that, that was just, that should be something that would be headline news for an entire month. And it just got announced and we moved on because there was more and there was more and there was more. So all of these things have an impact. And I think there are too many people then expecting I should be able to cope with this. 76% of people are experiencing some level of burnout at the beginning of the year. So if three quarters of people, three quarters of employees or workers were experiencing some level of burnout, which affects your resilience, which affects your energy, which affects your ability to cope and adapt, And then we start going into a pandemic no one was prepared for this no one should should be able to cope with this as of right so can we stop being so ridiculously high maintenance about it and can we actually ask for some help perhaps
0: so what do you suggest people do if they know because we all know when we're in burnout well i don't know maybe (laughs) we've all got an idea when we're when somebody points out these
1: are the signs What would you recommend people do? The first thing is to get a greater understanding. When I first came to burnout, I was crying in the toilets at work, Googling. And the research I was coming across basically said, if you're burned out, that's it. You cannot cope with stress. And what you need to do is reduce all areas of stress in your life and move on. And I was like, I'm a freaking litigation lawyer. Are you kidding me? I work with the recently bereaved over their childhood trauma and litigate it. (laughs) Can you imagine giving someone that advice this year? So the first thing is to, to get a greater understanding of burnout because actually what we tend to do is treat it like the monster under the bed. If I don't look at it, I don't have to deal with it because it's big and it's scary and it's the end of my career. It's not. It's completely manageable and reversible. And one of the things that I haven't even mentioned is I went through burnout. I launched this business, Searching for Serenity working with individuals whilst I was working at a top 25 law firm here in the UK dealing with traumatic brain injury clients in the Court of Protection, which was also being lambasted in the media at that point as well. So if I can work a full-time job, having experienced burnout the year before, work a full-time job and launch a business on top of it and help other people with burnout, imagine what you can do if you're a little bit more sane than me. So that's the first thing get clear on what burnout is it is not the end of your career it is not game over it is simply the result of too much stress over too much time it's the natural consequence of too much stress over too much time that doesn't mean you have to go and live under a tree like a monk it simply means becoming aware of your stressors and making a difference that's the first thing the second thing is talk you are not the only person three quarters of people experiencing a level of this at any one time the more you talk the more we develop the emotional literacy, the more we become aware, the more we develop support structures. The third thing is speak to someone who knows what they're talking about. Not necessarily just me. There are plenty of brilliant burnout coaches, burnout speakers, but also just even simple things like therapy, CBT. You know, all of these things are about putting ourselves back at the center of the Venn diagram. It's about remembering that in order for me to do my job and take care of other people and show up and be there for my partner and walk my dog. Don't say that too loudly. you will hear me. I have to be healthy and safe and relatively sane in the middle of it all. So I have to be in the center of the Venn diagram and I have to be taking care of myself. If you start with that premise, everything changes because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much from the stock of women self-flagellate themselves until everybody else has had every drop of blood. And then they're allowed to have a glass of water and an almond to take care of themselves. So if you change it from I have to take care of everybody else before I'm allowed to look after myself to I have to look after myself in order to be able to take care of everybody else. And if I fail to take care of myself, I'm being negligent. I could tell you to be a lawyer. Then that shifts the equation. It means you have to take care of yourself first. You have to pay attention to, oh, I'm tired and communicate. For example, I'm struggling a little bit with this area today. So bear with me or asking for support. It changes the whole game. Um, and that is where it really starts from there it's then about having awareness making small changes it is often small tweaks to our beliefs perfectionism imposter syndrome i'm not good enough i'll be good enough when our behaviors are driven by those i'll overwork in order for people to like me i'll look after everyone else before myself because i'm not worth it our maladaptive coping mechanisms that keep us stuck in it coffee wine chocolate overwork all of these things But if you start with the premise that in order for me to do everything I need to do, I need to take care of myself and I'm going to let other people down and myself if I don't do that, the whole conversation shifts.
0: It's interesting because the other day somebody was saying a very similar thing and she made the analogy of when they do the safety thing on planes and they say if the air mass drops down, put yours on before you take care of the children. She said for years I'm like, don't be ridiculous. I'm going to take care of my children first. She said, but basically that's not what you need to do because by
1: the time no. you've taken care of the kids, you're out of it. So
0: then what do the kids do?
1: And usually what happens is you're trying to take care of the kids, your own oxygen depletes, and you pass out and the kids can't reach the masks. Yes. It is, it is exactly that. It's If you take care of yourself, you are enabled to take care of other people. And for most of us, that is the shift that we have to make. Because as inherent people pleasers and carers and empaths, we don't and we look after everybody else first. And that's how you end up in burnout. That's, I still have clients who I was working with in contentious probate and court of protection who cried when I left and who I'm still in contact with now. I, you know, I My last job, I had two or three different clients say, I want to come with you. Where are you going? And I had to say, I'm taking a career break. I'm actually doing something completely different oh okay you can come for a holiday at our place then no that's not going to happen that's unprofessional but the I have several previous clients who I'm still in contact with now and who love what I do now and they can understand why sometimes I didn't quite show up but I could have been there to take care of so many other people to help so many other people through their trauma and their pain and their life changing injuries if I had known at 22, 25, 28, 30, or whenever, to take care of myself first in order to be there for them. And there are some people who inherently know this, but they are a minority of people.
0: It's not in our culture to take care of ourselves first. Mm-hmm. If you talk about generational memory, it's the done thing to take care of everybody else. Put, your, put everybody else first, put yourself last, make sure everybody else is okay. It's the like army. That. One of my sons was captain of the cadet unit. He couldn't eat until everybody else had, had eaten.
1: He couldn't go to bed till everybody else had gone to bed. I make the joke, and it's ironic because a number of my clients are actually in, in religion, like that's a profession, but are religious professionals, um, essentially, <laughs> vicars and priests and stuff. And I make the joke that it is a Protestant work ethic. It's you work hard and you'll get the rewards at the end. And we've got to shift that. It's a cultural understanding that we have to delay gratification and reward and that we have to almost not harm ourselves necessarily, but not consider ourselves in order to be good people. And that has to shift if we want to continue doing good work. And actually, it's not, if we look back, it's not actually what the bible says it's not actually what jesus said but it's become the protestant work ethic and for any country where there is this religious undertone of taking care of other people before yourself in order to be a good person it's incredibly difficult to shift culturally
0: thanks so much Leah like I could carry on because there's so many yeah. avenues we could go down with this <laughs> yes. I would love to talk to you so tell just say how people can get in touch with you I will put it on the web page as well because I do a, yeah. a page for every podcast it'll be on there Fantastic. and how pe- how people can get in touch with you and what programs you got going at the moment that kind of thing but
1: yeah tell. so um, my website is searchingforserenity.co.uk, and you can also find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, which is Leah Steele UK, um, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Serenity Search. This year, I have actually moved away from programs for the most part. I tend to do more workshops, um, kind of informational development. And there's, if you go to my website and look at the courses, there's dozens of home study workshops you can work from there and they're all very low cost but one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is saying we need to have more conversations so I've set something up called Let's Talk which is a very low cost it's about 10% of my usual hourly rate 45 minute one-to-one call for anybody who wants more help and support wants to understand what burnout is wants to make some differences basically if you've been listening to this and you thought that's me this is for you. Um, And it is completely one-off. It is not any kind of sales call or anything like that. It is simply, let's talk for 45 minutes. I want to hear your story. I want to understand people more and I'll give you as much help and support in that time as I can, as much guidance, as much signposting. You'd be amazed how much I can cover in 45 minutes. I do talk very quickly. (laughs) So there's a lot in there and those are 15 pounds. So it's very, very low cost so that people can get more help and support as they need it because this year has been a year
0: yeah oh that uh, that's really cool because like you say the first step is just talking to somebody and quite often yeah. talking to somebody will just like give you the almost the permission to to admit what's going on to take the next step and to start taking care of yourself it is sometimes yeah. like you've got to get permission off
1: somebody and we are inherent problem fixers all of us So the moment you start talking about it, your brain is immediately working on solutions and things to change. So just having those conversations, we then start knitting a kind of resultant stress resilience path. I absolutely love them. Um, I'm absolutely in love with this way of working. So it's brilliant, but it's a great way to get started.
0: It's been so gorgeous watching you over the last four years because I think we met just as you were starting up. And you're so different now to what you were. Like you look different. Your whole vibe is so different to what it were. You were so stressed when I first mm. met you. So it, like, it was, well um, over the edge, not even on the edge. You were like way beyond it.
1: Yeah. And I was, I started the business basically just going, okay, this is something that's working for me. I'm going to share it with other people. But there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of worry. There was a lot of doubt. And hey, you know, 2020 has been the year where it's only taken the apocalypse for people to take stress seriously. So that's worked. But all joking aside, I think we have tipped the conversation to a level where we can't go back now and the genie's out of the bottle. So between working with corporates, with individuals, just developing this kind of suite of resources, it's so that I can say to people, you can go here, you can go here, you can go here without me needing to overperform all the time and without me needing to feel like i have to constantly chase the next thing and fill my own self-worth issues in order to be good enough it's it's been a it's been an experience you're looking great for
0: it (laughs) like in all senses of the word i don't mean that physically (laughs) but you just there's a different
1: energy yeah absolutely and i've been feeling that i actually started my first corporate trainings a year ago tomorrow and it's it feels like it's been a decade already
0: so i'll just say thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on thanks for joining us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood make sure you visit our website middleagedwomenstuff.com, where you can subscribe to the show in any of the players or via rss so you'll never miss a thing If you liked this show, you might want to check out the webpage, which gives you lots more information about both our host and our guest, along with heaps of other resources. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday and Friday for the next episode. And that's all for this episode. We can't wait to see you next time.